Well, good morning, church. <clears throat> Welcome to week one of a new series called The Upside Down Kingdom, a phrase that was used in that Bible Project video. Um, if, if any of you are not familiar with Bible Project, uh, strongly recommend it. Um, I strongly recommend it for adults, people who are extremely familiar with the Bible, um, or people who are new, especially people who are new to the Bible, um, and also especially for kids. Um, this is an absolutely incredible resource, especially for any in, uh, in middle and high school. Um, just can't say enough good things about the Bible Project. It's excellent theology, and it's also really cool production in their videos. All, the, all their videos, I think, are under six minutes, and um, they do uh, a really great job. So definitely check them out. I apologize to anybody who was uh, hoping we would continue our trek through the book of Exodus. Exodus is an exciting tale. And um, uh, we did the first half of Exodus uh, throughout the season of Lent. Uh, that series that we just finished was called An Inheritance of Freedom because we attempted to show in parallel the story of, of the deliverance of, of, e of Israel uh, from Egypt with our own deliverance through the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. In the end, we spoke about freedom and salvation being not just for us personally, but for those whom we're called to serve and minister to. You see, you and I were not set free. You were not saved merely so that you could get on good terms with God and then go to heaven one day when you die. You were saved in order that through you, God could do amazing things. As Paul says in Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are, Paul says, God's workmanship. We're his, his poema, that's where we get the word poem. Uh, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. You were saved for good works. You were set free for good works, which God prepared. God prepared these good works um, beforehand in order that we might walk in them, that they might be our life. This is how we should walk. We should walk in the way of, um, of these works, these good works, these amazing things that God intends to do through us. So this whole Christianity thing, that's a good name for a series, by the way. This whole Christianity thing, it, it isn't about having like afterlife insurance. It's far more about who you are now and how you live your life today. Jesus said that he offers us an abundant life, a, a life worth pursuing. So what are your priorities? What are your habits? In short, if, if Jesus came to announce an upside-down kingdom, um, which he did. What does the kingdom fitness look like? If we're called to be the workmanship of God, what does it look like to be fit with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength for the work that he's called us to do? This is a short three-week series where we're going to look at, um, at kingdom fitness and, and see if we can be, be challenged 
in fresh ways. We're going to look at this, this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector today. Next week, uh, Amy is going to share with us uh, Jesus' words about kids, about children. Uh, and then we're going to look um, uh, in two weeks at the story of the rich young ruler. But before we go any further, I want to take just a moment to define what Jesus was talking about when he announced the kingdom. Because you might be sitting there thinking, well, I've heard that phrase. I'm not 100% sure what he meant. Um, as, we're talked about, as we talked about last week, one of the first recorded quotes of Jesus in the New Testament, probably the first quote of Jesus in the New Testament is, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, gospel means good news. So the announcement of God's kingdom is good news. But again, what is the kingdom? The kingdom is God's space. It's his realm, his rule, his reign, his sphere of influence. It is the present and impending reign of God. Uh, for science fiction fans, we could say that the kingdom is God's dimension. The biblical meta-narrative tells us that once upon a time, uh, God's dimension and the earthly dimension were one. Look at Genesis 1 and 2. But humanity's rebellion of sin drove them apart. That's Genesis 3 and just about the rest of the Bible. When Jesus said that the kingdom was at hand, he was announcing that God's dimension was breaking into ours like in an ever-increasing Venn diagram, um, the uh, ever-increasing um, overlap of a Venn diagram. The Christ event, the Christ event, when we refer to the Christ event, it would be the, the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. The Christ event is the first fruits of a new creation, the kingdom of God breaking into our space, into our dimension. If, if that sounds like science fiction, so be it. As, as Paul said, as Christians, you and I, we are ambassadors of that merger. Now, to think about this, we have to go next to parables. Parables are stories that Jesus told in order to help us understand the mysteries of the kingdom. One of the things that we discover about Jesus' teaching is that the kingdom is not what we might expect. Instead, it's actually upside down. The people we expect to be in God's favor tend to be the antagonists of Jesus' parables, and the people who aren't known for being very godly, they tend to either be the hero, or they're celebrated in some form by God, who is the ultimate hero. The parable we'll look at today is a fine example of that. So, so grab your Bibles, go to that bookshelf that, that's right there in your, in your living room, I bet. Uh, there, there's a Bible right there. Go grab it. it use the, the, the Bible rather than your phone because you need it in your house. You might as well do it, right? Go grab your Bibles and, uh, or you could go to BibleGateway.org and look up Luke 18. And we're going to begin at verse 9. Luke 18, starting in verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He said this, he said, Two men were walking into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee 
and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners and the unjust and adulterers and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, that this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified, rather than the other, the, rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, if you're anything like me, you read a parable like this, um, and it offers you a little bit of sigh of relief. First of all, it doesn't appear that Jesus is doing anything too mysterious with this story here. The, the parable is fairly easy to understand. It's not hard to follow. Secondly, with, with minimal effort, you can come away with a, with a moral that is both challenging, but also perhaps not too convicting. The superficial religious leader, he didn't get it, but the honest, and, um, the honest man who admitted his faults and surrendered himself to God's mercy received justification. Moral of the story, be honest and sincere, especially to God. God cares about your heart far more than your religion. I think if you read this parable and that was your primary takeaway, you could have done worse. That's, that's pretty good. I don't think that that's not what it means. But I think that if we dive into this just a bit more deeply, we might see just a few more details that help us fill things out. For starters, anytime a parable drives us to start dividing us and them, or the good guys from the bad guys, or the in crowd from everybody else, um, I think that is a good sign that we need to take another look. A few chapters earlier, Jesus tells a parable of, of a rich man who had, a, had, a, had to fire a manager who worked for him. And the manager figures out a way to, to go and collect half of the money from the people who owed the master. And it's not quite clear if the shrewd manager is deal, uh, stealing from his master or, or what. But, but the master ends up commending the manager uh, for, what his, for what he had done um, and, and uh, for his shrewdness. And then Jesus ends up making a point about money. It's an odd story, uh, one that kind of leaves you going, huh? Um, we're, we'll dive into that another day. But for now, my point is this, that, that I think that if we're going to take the ones that seem the easiest to understand, we need to give them the same weight of our effort and our time and our prayer as we would if we didn't, as we would of the ones that we didn't really understand as, as easily. I'm not saying we have misinterpreted the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, but I do think that we should spend time with it. We should wrestle with it. We should make sure that we're not missing anything. A cool thing about this parable, back to the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, is that Luke tells us right up front um, who the audience was. Apparently, Jesus told this parable to people who, A, trusted in their own righteousness, and B, treated others with contempt. Jesus is going to have some hard, 
harsh words for the Pharisees in the, in the parable for sure. But note that, the, that, 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 that verse 9 doesn't say that Jesus was exclusively talking to corrupt religious leaders. There is something in this parable for any of us who might fall into the traps of pride and prejudice. Built into this passage is a guard against reading the parable and saying, well, that really doesn't apply to me. If you found yourself thinking that, then, then this parable is for you. I love the beginning of the parable in verse 10. It says, two men went up into the temple to pray. I love how it, it levels the playing field right at the beginning. It doesn't say that a Pharisee and a tax collector went into the temple to pray. Jesus begins by calling them both men. Anthropoidua, two men. Two men both trying to make their way in the world. Neither of them were any more or less a man. Both of them enter the story on level playing ground. Um, before we look at them individually, we'll also have to look at the setting for a moment. Jesus places the setting of this parable in the temple. If, if any place in the world represented um, the intersection of heaven and earth for Jesus' audience, it would have been the temple in Jerusalem. The first temple was built by King David's son Solomon and was destroyed by Babylon in the 6th century BC. It was then rebuilt and completed in the 1st century AD by the family of Herod the Great just before it was destroyed again by the Romans in 70 AD. The temple was a place of prayer and sacrifice, but it was also a cultural center. It was a, it was a place in Jewish society where one could find order. Its courts would separate Jew from Gentile, men from women, priests from non-priests, and the clean from the unclean. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus cleanses the temple after he finishes, after he finds some were using the temple as a marketplace. And he quotes Isaiah 56, which says that God's house, his temple, is to be a house of prayer for all nations. And that they had turned it into a den of robbers. Jesus is using this parable to show that the, the old divisions are not going to stand in the kingdom, in, in the upside-down kingdom. In, in the words of Bob Dylan, the times they are changing. So, so now we come to their differences. So one man was a Pharisee, and the other was a tax collector. Pharisees, during this time of, of Jesus, they were, they were keepers of the law. Their authority was largely unofficial, but they were a powerful group of men who sought to purify Israel through um, enforcing Torah law. In Luke's gospel, we also often see Pharisees um, as men who pop up to kind of inspect Jesus' faithfulness to the law. Um, Jesus often interprets the law differently than they do. In fact, Jesus talks about the law as someone who has, it's, it's as if Jesus has authority over it. This often puts the Pharisees in a position of the New Testament antagonists, um, but we have to be careful with that because, you know, it would be easy for us to connect the dots that we have, to start connecting dots that we have no business connecting. 
The Pharisees, they they weren't evil because they sought to uphold the law of Moses. Jesus said that not one jot or, or tittle of the law will be abolished through his ministry. No, he came to fulfill the law. He came to offer it completeness. But he also came to exercise authority over it. In a sense, Jesus was the embodiment of the law itself. So he often interprets the laws in ways that make the Pharisees, who were, had some semblance of control over the, the religion of the day, made the, the Pharisees nervous. Now, tax collectors were a different sort of individual altogether. They weren't just like people who worked for the IRS. Um, taxes are a pain, but you know we hope they serve a purpose, right? No, tax collectors in the first century were Jewish men who worked for the temple, for the for the empire. They colluded with the pagans. They they aided a system of oppressive rule over God's people. And to make matters worse, there wasn't a lot of regulation going on. So the tax collectors would often take more money than they were supposed to because who's going to stop them, right? As such, they were a detested lot. In one particularly moving uh, Jesus movie, which I think is on Amazon Prime right now, it's the, it's the Bible movie that came out a couple of years ago by the, the, is it the Downies? I forget the name. Anyway, there's this scene, there's this moving scene uh, where Jesus actually tells this parable in earshot of Levi Matthew, the, the tax collector whom Jesus calls to be his disciple. Um, the tax collector is sitting at, at his tax booth while Jesus says these words and he, he gives this entire parable with his eyes locked on Levi at the tax booth. And as, 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 as Jesus says these words, um, Levi Matthews, his, his, uh, his tears are just rolling down his face. The Pharisee goes into the temple, we're told, and that he stands by himself. The Pharisee intentionally makes a show of pride. And he separates them, or I'm sorry, he separates himself from others voluntarily. Then we get the show of disdain towards everybody but himself, right? We're told that he's praying to God, but the entire prayer is nothing but thanks, thanking God for how wonderful he is. He says, I thank you, I am not like other men. I am not like robbers and thieves and swindlers and the sexually immoral. And I especially thank you that I'm not like that tax collector over there. Heaven forbid. He tells God that, that he fasts twice a week. That's quite a lot of fasting considering he was only under legal obligation to fast once a year. Also, he tithes all he gets. This guy doesn't go get a donut without chopping off a tenth of it. Jesus has painted a picture of this guy as an independent, self-righteous blowhard. He depends only on himself and uses his self-proclaimed righteousness as a reason to keep distance with the rest of those lowly people over there. Let's be clear. The problem is pride. The problem is that he is trusting in his own righteousness. The problem is not that he isn't, um, uh, isn't the things that, that he said he wasn't. 
um, you know, we can only assume that he's telling the truth, at least the truth as he understands it. So it's okay for him to be thankful to God that, that he's been spared a corrupt life. It's, it's okay for you and I to be thankful to God that we have been spared a corrupt life. I think sometimes Christians, though, can get into bad habits of bragging about like who had the worst life before Christ. But I, I, I think um, if, if you've honestly lived a life free of extortion, injustice, adultery, that, that's a good thing. But that's all the more reason to be thankful to God and then move closer in love to the people who could use some benefit of the doubt. Don't look in the mirror and thank God for a job well done, you know, Gaston. So then Jesus tells us about the tax collector. Apparently, the tax collector was standing far off. The, the message translates that he was uh, slumped in the shadows. You see, tax collector was also um, standing by himself, like the Pharisee was, but uh, he wasn't standing by himself voluntarily. He was standing off by himself because that's what society told him he was. Evidently, he was standing close enough to the Pharisee to be seen. He had the courage to at least enter the temple courts, even if it meant seen by those in authority. But we're told that um, he kept his eyes on the ground. He wouldn't even, he couldn't even lift his head. And it says he, he beat his breast, meaning that he spoke with utter honesty. And he said plainly, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know, some have said that the best short prayer is, is simply the words, thank you. But I think that this is also another awesome one. Have you ever been asked, have you ever been asked by, uh, by someone like me, or maybe by me, uh, to pray, and, and you felt weird because you couldn't come up with, with eloquent, eloquent words or, you know, Bible passages off the top of your head, and, you know, I won't apologize for asking people to pray, but, but I will say that, that brevity is completely acceptable. And many times it's, it's actually preferred. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's been said that, that true humility, it's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. You know, who knows why this guy was a tax collector? Maybe that's what his father was and he just entered the family business. Maybe, maybe he got into this life of collusion with the empire and he just couldn't see a way out. I mean, if you were responsible for bringing the emperor his money, how easy do you think it would be to just leave that way of life and go off and start a fishing business, you know? This guy saw no way out of his present situation, so he simply goes to God and says, have mercy on me, God, I'm a sinner. But then here's the thing. He may have been a sinner when he came into the presence of God. He may have even referred to himself as a sinner. But the funny thing is, he didn't go home a sinner. 
Jesus says, I tell you, it was the tax collector who went home justified, not the Pharisee. To, to be justified means to be declared righteous. The Pharisee tried to declare himself righteous, but no matter how pure he thought he was, the truth is that his heart was black. But here's the thing. The tax collector's heart may have been just as black. We can take him at his word that he was indeed a sinner. But he goes before the presence of God and prays this simple prayer, this honest, simple prayer. God have mercy on me, a sinner. And then God does this incredibly unexpected thing. He answers back. God answers back by declaring the man not only forgiven. He declares him justified. He declares him righteous. He declares him holy. He declares him pure. I mentioned earlier that, that, that we're God's kingdom ambassadors. Have a listen. Turn, turn with me to... Uh, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And see how Paul is kind of tying this all together. From now on, this is the Apostle Paul writing, we regard no one according to the flesh, meaning we regard no one from the point of view of this earthly dimension. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, even though Christ was once here on earth. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's a part of that merger. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Jesus Christ reconciled us back to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, the ministry of that merger. Um, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, but, but entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We have the responsibility to proclaim the, the gospel. We have the, the responsibility of doing exactly what Jesus did at the beginning of, of Mark. The time is fulfilled. Uh, the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is within your grasp. The kingdom is within your, in your midst. Um, repent and believe in the good news. That, that's, that's our responsibility to, to go and make disciples of Jesus. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. How convincing of an argument are you? We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be a part of that merger. For our sake, he made sin, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, see the problem with the Pharisee is that he was trusting in his own righteousness. The good thing about the tax collector is it, it, it's, it's, it's not, um, it's that he was trusting in God's righteousness. 
The Pharisee trusted in his own merit. He trusted in his own amazing works. He trusted in his own strength, his own courage, because he wanted to be the great man. But the tax collector, he knew darn well he wasn't a great man. I mean, maybe he was a man of character. I mean, at least he had the courage and the honesty to admit himself a sinner and ask for God's mercy. But, but the truth is that the, the tax collector was trusting in God's righteousness. Um, that that, that the, the separation, the, the chasm that exists between our righteousness and God's, that's a deficit that needs to be repaired. And on the cross... Jesus repaired that deficit. That was what the, the cross was all about. And so once we are in Christ, we are a new creation. We are part of that merger. We're a little, um, we're a little circle of heaven wherever we go. And we have been given the responsibility by God to go into this broken world and feed the poor and proclaim the gospel and stand for justice and stand against oppression and sexism and racism and violence. We have been given the, the, the job of being an ambassador of the kingdom of God so that the kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. But all of this is following Christ's lead, right? All of this is following Jesus' lead, not by our own strength, but by his, because in Christ alone, our hope is found. Let me pray for it. Father, I thank you so much for this church. I thank you uh, for this technology, that even though we are uh, far apart and socially distant, that, um, that there are still um, kingdom work. There's still kingdom work, work of reconciliation that's being done right now. Um, I thank you for, uh, for, for our friends who are in other states um, uh, around the country that are watching this, that have the opportunity, friends and family that get an opportunity to watch this. And I'm just so grateful for them. I'm so grateful that you are connecting our community and connecting our bodies in incredible ways. Uh, I just ask um, that uh, you would be with us uh, this week, that you would uh, be with our medical community, that you would be with our kids as they figure out school, that you would be with businesses as they figure out the next steps. Father, we just, we just need your love right now. We need your guidance and your wisdom. And Father, we put ourselves uh, at your mercy because we are sinners and we're looking for you to declare us righteous because of your holy love. It's in the most holy love of Jesus Christ, I pray.